So we're in Judges chapter 1, and uh, forgive me if I butcher these Hebrew names, though many of you wouldn't know if I did or not. So I'll read them really fast and really confidently so it sounds like I know exactly what I'm saying. Chapter 1, verse 1, it will read to the end of the chapter. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we have some in the back. I will probably read a little faster than the screen, but we'll see if the button man can keep up. Verse 1 says this, After the death of Joshua... The people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him, and then Judah went up, And the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. And they found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negeb, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Shishai and Ahiman and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debur. The name of Debur was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksah, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenes, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksah, his daughter, for a wife. And when she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey. And Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have set me in the land of the Negeb. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in Negeb near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephah. And devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz, and that is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshin and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. And when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. And Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalol, so the Canaanites lived among them but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Echo or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Ahab or Akzib or Helba or Ephek or Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. And Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, so they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. And nevertheless, 
The inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. And the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling of Mount Harris, in Ejelon, in Shalbim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the accent of ascent of Akrabim from Selah and upward. And all God's people said, this is God's word, and a lot of God's words. Last week, um, we gave you, or I gave you the prequel, if you will, about the history that led up to this time of the Judges. And at the close of uh, Joshua, the book of Joshua, right before Judges, in Joshua 24, he gives this final speech detailing all that God has done to keep his promise to Abraham. And by grace, he says, he freed them from slavery, he defeated all their enemies, he brought them into this land that's ultimately flowing with milk and honey. And having conquered the land, God's people are supposed to fully possess their inheritance and then live in it fully and faithfully. Now, possessing the land fully is going to require them to basically fight and to drive out the remaining pockets of resistance Uh, which God has promised to do if they will fight for land that's already theirs. So any cities that you see listed for these various tribes are also listed in Joshua as the cities that they've already been given. So these are their cities. They own them. They have to go and take them. uh, And God has promised to fight for them if they will step onto the battlefield. So specifically, though, As they fight, they are supposed to obey God's command of Deuteronomy chapter 7, which came prior to them going into the land at all. Deuteronomy 7 said very specific things. It said, number one, you need to annihilate everybody, kill them all. Number two, you need to to not make any agreements or covenants with these people. Number three, you need to not marry any of them. And then four, tear down any religious altars that are there. So Judges is the history of that failure, ultimately, to do what God had commanded. Now, as a purely historical narrative, this is a difficult book to just follow historically, but there is purpose in it. Um, It does record actual historical events, but it would make a lot more sense if it started in chapter 2. Chapter 2 begins with the death of Joshua again, okay? So it's a little odd. The first chapter uh, is a bit strange, but it's like an introduction to the whole book again. It's an outline of a picture of the whole book, but it starts with kind of seemingly unrelated little vignettes. Um, You've got an assassination. You've got a little bit of a romance tale. uh, And you've got uh, what amounts to Israel's version of like SEAL Team 6 going into Bethel and taking this city. And it's like... How does this relate to everything? Because then Joshua dies again, or for the first time, and you're like, okay, why are we starting over? Um, It is very much an introduction. The author did record actual history for judges so that they could understand what happened that day and understand in relation to what's happening this day. You'll see them use the phrase, this day, a lot. Like, because they didn't do this, Jebusites are in the city to this day. And so he does have an historical purpose with it. But God also wrote it for a redemptive uh, history uh, for Christians like you and I to ultimately point us toward the king, the coming king, uh, David, but really the heir of David who would be Jesus. And it also gives us a picture, as difficult as it might be for us to really view Old Testament texts like this, of salvation by grace. And our own continuing fight in that grace. Not for that grace, in that grace. That's the picture here. And we have to continually keep that in the front of our mind because it is something that has meaning for us today. So with the death of Joshua that it records in the first verse, Israel's future goes from certainty to confusion. And in the first verse is the one time you will see basically in the book where together they are faithful. And what I mean is, together, as a nation, they ask the Lord what to do. They don't just do what they think is right. It's the one, what is right for us to do? The one time that they do it. 
It's the most faithful Israel will be, really. And the rest of the book is the slow digression of a people that go from partial obedience to full-on rebellion. Now, what starts as one inquiry to God about what he would have them do, the next time they respond to God or, or inquire to God will simply be crying about what they have decided to do themselves. So that's where it goes from. What should we do to, oh, look what we did, Lord help us. Constantly, okay? Over and over again. Now, what ends up seen is, uh, quite frankly, a story that kind of looks, I think, like the average Christian and maybe a lot like the church and a lot like our culture. You have a story that's full of unfulfilled commitments, partial obedience, and a lot of sinful compromise where the people of God, instead of reshaping the world as they're supposed to do, they are shaped by it and ultimately overcome by it. Now, the one, there's, I wrote in the, the, this, the study guide, that one of the theological points about this is God's silence. He doesn't talk a lot in the Bible. So when he does, the Bible, in the book of Judges, when he does speak, it's really important to kind of like, okay, God's saying something here. This is one of the few times God speaks. He'll speak one other time um, at the beginning of chapter 2 here. But he answers their initial prayer, and he basically commands the tribe of Judah to go up north. And they really, it means go up north. You'll see them go down in a second. So they're supposed to go up north and battle against the Perizzites and the Canaanites. And they are, again, taking uh, lands that are theirs. Now, Judah is not selected, though I, in their bulletin, if you got one, there's a yellow sheet. On one side it says Good Friday, don't forget, on April 6th. And the other side's a map. And it shows you the map of all of the tribes and the allotments. And you'll notice Judah's the biggest. they got the most people, they got the biggest land, and you think, well, of course he's going to pick Judah. That makes military sense. Well, that's not why Judah was chosen. Judah was chosen because it was the special tribe through which the king would come. And that was predicted a long time ago when his dad, we don't know who his dad was, starts with a J, Jacob, good job. His name was Jacob. Jacob had 12 kids, and they're all the tribes of Israel. Judah's one of the kids. And at the end of Genesis, a lot of things start and end with deaths, you'll notice. At the end of Genesis, Jacob's dying, and he does a last prayer over each of his sons. And here's what he prays for Judah. He says, uh, it's in Genesis 49, 8, if you want to read it, but I'll read it to you. It says, Judah, he's praying over him, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. And then verse 10 says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Translated, you're going to rule. And you're going to rule forever. And ultimately, that's pointing to Christ. Christ comes from the line of Judah, as does David, and you follow it back and you get to here. So Judah responds, goes up north, and begins to fight for land that he already possesses. And the Lord drives out his enemies before him. And he brings along Simeon, which again, militarily doesn't make sense. He doesn't really need Simeon's help. He's the biggest tribe. Simeon is located inside of Judah's land. So he has an allotment inside of him. So what it does show us is that in the beginning of this book, there's a lot of unity. There's a sense of community. They're working together. And that is really important because the time you get to the end of the book, they're killing each other. They're pretty much in a civil war. And so, you, again, you're seeing this progression, and the, the writer is setting you up to understand what was and what happened. And in this case, Simeon, though, is unified with them. They go together and they defeat this 10,000-person army. Most likely, it was really big, maybe 10,000, maybe more. 10,000 or 1,000, numbers like that in Old Testament specifically, are usually not used uh, exactly. Sometimes they are, but when you talk about 1,000, that's just a big time. Like, God has 1,000 cattle on 1,000 hills. What does it mean on the 1,000 first hill? That's not His. Okay, so a thousand, you know, better is a, a thousand uh, days on earth, wait, what is that verse? 
Better is one day in your court than a thousand elsewhere, right? Well, it doesn't mean a thousand in one day somewhere else is better. You know, so that's, that's the idea. Big army. They defeat this huge army, and they chase after the king, Adonai Bezek, and he is trying to hide from him, it seems. And so he, they capture him, and they mutilate him. That should be disturbing. Really, in a historical perspective, that's not unusual. The punishment was very common for what you would do against your enemy. And uh, you would cut off their toes and their thumbs because they couldn't pull a bow or hold a sword anymore. Try to hold a sword, like, with any kind of, you know, strength or pull a bow without your thumb. You can't. So it was very much a military thing. But according to Adonai Bezek, it was much more than that. By his own words, the king recognizes that this is a non-Israelite. He recognizes that his punishment was not only divine, but it was deserved. And what he says in his own words, that God is the one who has repaid him. And so what you see this picture is something very specific. Judah has been very faithful. He has punished 70 kings. Now again, 70 is a, is a representative number of perfection. Okay? So uh, you forgive 70 times 7. Well, you don't necessarily take that literally. It's the perfect sense of forgiving all the time whenever you're sinned against. Now, 70 here is a number that has always been perfection. And so what we see is this idea of perfect justice has been exacted by God through the hands of Judah. And Judah has proven to be faithful in what they were supposed to do. And God has said, yep, when you're faithful, I will be faithful, and I will judge them, and I will fight for them, and I will destroy them. So you have this picture of justice represented in Judah. Now, the faith of Judah continues, and they, they go from big Judah to something very specific to one guy. And it's one guy named Caleb. Judah now goes down south. It says he goes down. So now he's traveling down to take Jerusalem and Hebron and some of the cities of the hill country and the lowlands and all of these cities, again, are already part of Judah's allotment. So he's not conquering anything that he hasn't already been given. And an 85-year-old named Caleb, he's a warrior. Um, he is the one who was the second spy along with Joshua. He is the center of this uh, hill country conquest. Uh, he is not a natural-born Israelite. But he was adopted into uh, Judah, and because of, his, because of his faithful service, he was given an inheritance from Judah's allotment. So what you see in Joshua, when they're throwing the lands out, you see Judah, and then Caleb. And then it goes on to the other lands. So Caleb is really uh, a Judite, if you will. He is part of Judah, and he represents what I think is supposed to be the example of a faithful man, an Israelite, in this context of Judah. So it's not just Judah, it gets very specific. And so we see the kind of strange story of Caleb wanting to conquer Debur and saying, I'm going to offer my daughter's hand in marriage for anyone, the guy, who can conquer this city. And it was a pretty significant city. It wasn't an easy deal. And we kind of go, well, man, that's kind of like brutal to your daughter, not if it's a stud who comes up and wipes out a city and ends up being a godly man. No, it's a very good thing to do. And that's what he does. Othniel raises his hand, who is either the brother, nephew, we're not really sure, although it says younger brother here, of uh, Caleb. You'll see Othniel again. He is the first judge of, there'll be a judge for each tribe. He is the first judge for Judah. And so Othniel raises his hand, wipes him out. He's given the daughter. He's, she's also given a dowry present for her marriage of a chunk of land, and it's in a desert. And so the daughter comes to Caleb and says, Dad, you gave me a desert. I love it. Okay? That's really important. I, I preached an awesome sermon on Joshua on it, and it's, it's an awesome picture of the fact that she's given a chunk of land. She doesn't go back to Dad and say, give me some different land. She says, give me some water so I can water the land that you've given me. I want to be here. It's dry. 
it's terrible, it's yucky, but I want to be here, bring life to this place. It reminds us of our own, like, we're always trying to get out of what we got, as opposed to praying for God to come in and give us something there. So it's a beautiful picture, but that's not necessarily the point here. She goes, he gives her springs, and what we see in this case is Caleb is a stud. He's a stud on different levels, and I, by stud I mean he's a faithful follower of God. He's a faithful Israelite. He is a, a worthy warrior, a worthy man, a worthy husband. He is a strong leader who takes on the hardest of tasks. He is the one that said, I want the hill country where the giants are. You can imagine him when he first came in, he saw the giants, came back and said, hey, we should go, and no one wanted to go. They end up walking in the wilderness. He, for 40 years, he's thinking about, can't wait to get me some giants, right? Can't wait to get those giants. So when he gets the choice, like, where do you want the land? I want giant land. And he goes, he picks the hardest thing as a leader does. He is a faithful, faithful, brave warrior committed to conquering the land. He, even if he can't do it, he's like, someone come in. We're still conquering. We'll st- we're still taking what's ours. We are still faithful to what our promise was. He is also a loving father committed to his family. He wants his daughter to marry a stud of a man and gives her to a stud of a man. And not only that, he's got a stud daughter. You see that he was a faithful teacher because she didn't come complaining. She came asking for water in the land that they were called to to live in. He is carrying on generationally, I think, what are the promises of God. It's a beautiful picture of what, individually, a little picture of what a guy in Judah should look like. And so you've got faithfulness in Judah, Faithfulness, faithfulness. you got Judah annihilating enemies, not making covenants, not marrying around, ripping down all. You've got faithfulness. But even with verse 19 saying, the Lord is with Judah. And you're like, man, this guy's, they're going to be okay. In verse 20, you got the first seedling of unfaithfulness. And what it says was that Judah could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because of the Iron chariots. And it's tempting for us to go, well, it was just a really hard battle. He just, he tried. The problem with that is that God had promised all enemies would be driven out. He said it would happen. And Joshua, this is not the first time this complaint's been put up. The house of Joseph, I believe it was, said, oh, we want this land, but, you know, the the chariots are there. And Joshua said, that is not an obstacle. That will not stop you. Though you aren't as technologically advanced, though you may not have chariots, they cannot stop you. So the issue here is not just difficulty of war. The issue is unfaithfulness. Doesn't give us details of what it is. Doesn't tell us exactly how they're unfaithful. But it does say they could not do what God said they should have been able to do. There was a lack of faith in some way. There was some level of partial obedience, and it's very small. So even with Judah, the chosen people, the chosen tribe, the people through whom the king, Jesus, is going to come, you see that it won't be this Judah. And ultimately, Judah has a lot right, but a little off. And that sets the stage for the rest, because... It seems as if, in my experience, and maybe this has been the same for you, as goes the faith of the leaders, so goes the faith of the followers, for better or for worse. Judah, at this point, is the leader. In verse 21, we read for the first time that the people of Benjamin do not, says, drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. And so they're there to to the day, he says, this day, the day that's being written. And this is not could not, this is did not. So Judah was still unfaithful, but he could not. This one is did not. It's not that they fought and failed, they made a decision not to fight. And though both, like I said, are unfaithful, it appears to me, if I just want to just be practical and real, that there is a difference between maybe unintentional sin and deliberate sin. 
There were sacrifices in the Old Testament in the uh, Mosaic Law for sins that may have been committed. Job prays for his kids if they may have committed a sin. There is very much a, um, I think, a difference between unintentional sins and deliberate, both unfaithful, both worthy of wrath, but here you see a lot of decisions being made, deliberate sin, pursuit, we're not going to drive them out. And it gets worse from there. Now a sidebar, historically speaking, and I'll probably blog on this because it's really important to know, not only is Judges a, uh, a redemptive story, it is history, and you will see that something comes up commonly. Most likely the book uh, was written between a time period where David reigned and Saul's reign had ended. Saul was the first king of Israel. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. David was the best king of Israel, if you will. He was from the tribe of Judah, of which Jesus would come. When Saul died, there was a break of time, I think it might have been seven years, until David, who had already been anointed king, actually took the throne. During that time, Saul's son was installed as king, but not anointed as king, so he really wasn't a king at all. In many ways, there was no king in Israel. So you hear that phrase, there was no king in Israel? There's something being spoken to at this point. Now, catch this. Amazing. Joshua, verse 63 of the 15th chapter, 1563, has that exact same verse saying the Benjamin could not kicked Jebusites out of Jerusalem, but it says Judah could not drive the Jebusites out of Jerusalem. There isn't a, a political kind of emphasis being pushed throughout this book, and you'll see Benjamin, who is the tribe of Saul, being diminished in many ways, and the tribe of David being uplifted, which ultimately leads us to Christ, which is a good thing. But there's a historical piece. When people read this, Jewish-wise, ancient history, they would read it very differently than we might. And we have to kind of have, live in that tension a little bit. So that is happening here as well. Benjamin is in many ways being picked on um, because Saul was an unfaithful king. He was a king that was partially good. We'll see why that's important. Judah then, um, we see, well, I should say, start, <clears throat> excuse me, one decision leads to the next, and then we get into the house of Joseph. And the house of Joseph shows up, and we have this story that, as I said, it's kind of like Israel's SEAL Team 6, and they are partially faithful. So you're seeing this progression of disobedience get worse. And with the house of Joseph, what they do is they go and they want to attack Bethel. The Lord is with them. And a citizen comes out and they say, Psst, come here. And they say, hey, Jehoshaphat, whatever your name is, um, how do we get into your city? Because if you tell us how to get into your city secretly, of which we're going to totally wipe out, um, we will be nice to you. So he's like, looks at their army. Here's how you get into the city. Let's them into the city. They annihilate the city. They let him go. Now that same thing happened back at Jericho. Where they came to a prostitute. Her name was Rahab. And they said, hey... Um, we're going to wipe out this city, and uh, we'll deal well with your family. Uh, and she said, I believe you are, because I believe in the God that you believe in. And she later became part of Israel. And she actually became part of the line of Christ. Okay, This is a little different. And what we see is partial obedience. They go in, and they wipe out the city like they are supposed to do. But then they let... An unfaithful, this is not a guy that became part of their tribe, is a guy who goes and leaves and builds another Canaanite city that later comes back to plague them. But we did most of it right. Still unfaithful. Still unfaithful. And worse, perhaps, or getting progressively worse. Now, from Judah to Joseph, we see God's people go from this progression of, of obedience to partial obedience to basically full-on rebellion and disobedience. And historically, this sets the stage for how Israel deals with false gods and idols and what they tolerate until they basically end up worshiping. And then they worship to the extent where their lives get really bad and they cry out to God and He comes in and destroys 
the false idols and, and the enemy and judges them. Now, redemptively, this is the piece that I really want us to go as we go through the study to hit. Their relationship with the Canaanites, who are their enemy, God's enemy, mirrors our relationship with our enemy, sin. It's very similar, both individually and corporately. So as the church and as Christians, we have a very a parallel kind of mirror image going on here. Let me just be clear, though. Disciples of Christ. So those are genuine Christians, because a lot of people call them Christians. Disciples of Christ, followers of Christ, believers in Christ, are those who are saved by grace through faith in who Jesus is and what He did. Further, they are those who are blind and God has made to see. They are those who are chosen and adopted by God. They are those who are freed from slavery to sin, not by their own strength, but by God. They are those who are once dead and are made alive by God. They are those whom God took from the kingdom of darkness and transferred over to the kingdom of light by His power, by His will, and they are given an irrevocable inheritance by God held in heaven for them. That's a Christian. You'll notice, sound like Joshua's speech. By God, by God, by God. And by His Spirit, though, Christians, similar to this, are commanded to fight, to possess the inheritance that they already have. And what I mean is, God gives them not only the desire to fight, but the power and the ability to fight. And there is not only an inheritance irrevocably reserved and protected in hell for you in heaven, eternally to be experienced in the future. I believe there's an inheritance to be experienced right now, a life that is to have joy and fulfillment now in Christ. It's not just, I can't wait to get out of this world so I can experience new life. We are told we can walk in the newness of life right now. But there is a fight aspect to it. And like the Israelites, even knowing what God has done, even knowing what He's commanded, we are very tempted to stop fighting and to worship false idols. And for most of us, this is not an overnight decision. It's slow progression or slow digression. And most of us don't digress into the worst things possible. Most of us don't become, you know, just meth heads and and heroin addicts or murderers or whatever. Most of us become just partially obedient, which is still... 100% unfaithful. And you think about that. Think about a partially faithful husband. Partially faithful wife. How long does that marriage last? Well, I'm partially faithful. I'm faithful most of the time. I don't know if that's really going to last. See, what begins as partially, or actually what begins as faithful for us, what becomes partially faithful until it's completely rebellious starts with subtle compromises with sin. In an amazing way, this is what you see in a careful reading of verses 27 to 36, which I think most of us would read over and just go, oh yeah, they didn't drive them out. Oh, wait till I blow your mind. Ready? See, in verse 27, read a phrase that you see uh, seven times in this chapter. Seven, right? A perfect number. In this case, perfect unfaithfulness. Complete unfaithfulness. And the phrase is, they did not drive out the enemy. What that means is that they didn't obey God's command from Deuteronomy chapter 7. Which called for the annihilation of the enemy and and a refusal to be friends with the enemy. Which they did both. Or failed to do one, did the other. And in verse 28, before we... 
before I blow your mind, you're going to see something that's kind of scary. And it was scary to me and convicting to me about when this all started to occur. And you'll notice that it was not when they were weak, but it says, when Israel grew strong. When Israel grew strong, I believe that comfort and prosperity is where the seeds of unfaithfulness are actually sown. When there's no crisis, when there's no conflict, when things are just kind of okay, that's not when things are, I should say, that's when things are most dangerous. We think that when we're strong, like when, when things are prosperous, that's when we're most devoted to God. But let's be honest, when things are prosperous, that's when we're most undevoted to Him. That's when we kind of think, well, I can let my guard up a little bit. Things are not so bad. It's those times of success that are so dangerous, and right now the Israelites have it all. They have every spiritual and earthly advantage possible, but yet tribe after tribe, beginning at this point, decides not to drive. And instead, they subject them to forced labor. That's what they all do. Well, yeah, that's, that's, that's humanitarian. No, that's disobedience. It doesn't matter what we think about it. It's what God had commanded. And they are deciding something different. They have chosen their own wisdom over God's word. God has said this, but did you really say that? Gosh, that sounds like a serpent in the garden. Did you really say that? That's not what he really means. They chose comfort over conflict. They chose what was easier and wrong over what was harder and right. They very much chose to manage their sin and manage their enemy over fighting to destroy their enemy completely and never stopping. We go, wow, how could anyone ever choose to do that? Who tries to manage an enemy? Well, how do we? We slowly do it. We slowly do it over small compromise. And it begins when we stop fearing sin. Like, it's not really that bad of a thing. It's not that dangerous. And we stop ultimately fearing God. So check out what they did. You won't believe it. Verse 30. Okay, I'm going to go through three different verses. It says, verse 30, Zebulun, so that's one of the tribes, did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Heard that before. And the inhabitants of Nahalol. So the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. So in verse 30, we see this phrase, the Canaanites lived among Israel. The Canaanites lived among Israel. This is called toleration. We begin to tolerate certain things. We make a decision to ignore or avoid dealing with sin. We minimize sin. It's not that bad. It's no big deal. We do this both individually, corporately, as a community. You see this happening in the state of Washington and across the nation. Little tolerations. You know, it's not that bad. Let's not make a big deal about it. Instead of fighting... We either walk around with our ears plugged and our eyes covered, or we sit in a while we sit in a constant state of temptation or irritation because we're unwilling to deal with difficult things. And even if we don't pursue sin, we kind of go, you know, you do what you want; it's no big deal. We certainly don't pursue God. We basically say it's not a big a deal. So we got a few Canaanites around here. You know, big deal. Let them live. Gonna, let's just manage it. It'll, it. They're not going to be a big. They're not going to go out of control. We're strong. Then you get into verse thirty-one, and goes from toleration to accommodation, where it says Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Echo. Asher is another one of the sons, one of the tribes, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or Ahab, or. Akzib, or Helba, or of Aphek, or of Rahab. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. So we go from the Canaanites, check this out, the Canaanites lived among the Israelites, to the Israelites lived among the Canaanites. That is different. You go from toleration to, well, now we're living among them. 
We're beginning to accommodate those things. See, you can't help when you tolerate those things, when you subject yourself to constant temptation or just managing sin to eventually start going toward it. And again, this is never about an overnight denial of all things biblical, all things godly, all things truthful. Instead, it's a slow bringing in of small impurities, specifically into faith. A few harmless lies there, a couple of good experiences with sin, and then suddenly your faith is canonized. And the faithfulness, see, the faithfulness or lack thereof of Israel is not so much a full abandonment of God. It's like, I just mix a few idols in there to help it out. And so you have these mixing of idolatry. Well, I'm going to go ahead and worship the fertility gods and sex and money and all these things over here, but I'll go to church on Sunday. You're just kind of mixing it and then going, well, it's not so bad. You can, you know, marry who you want. That's cool. I don't want to judge. And we back up and we go, well, you know, if, if, if you guys love each other in your hearts and you want to live together, you know, if you get married, whatever, that's fine. You know, smoke a little pot. I know it's illegal, but, you know, they're just so, up, they're just so uptight. You know, a little, I, I'm making silly maybe examples, but it's little stuff. And little stuff leads to big stuff. How do I know that? Well, the Bible teaches it. Here's where it teaches where it leads to. So you have progression. Well, the Canaanites kind of lived among us. Then the Israelites lived among the Canaanites. So that's a big shift. Then check this out. Verse 34. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan, which is one of the tribes, back into the hill country. For they did not allow them to come down to the plain. There's the progression, both individually and corporately. We go from toleration of little things in our life to accommodation to being enslaved and oppressed by those things. That's the cycle that we all have gone through, probably individually. You see it happening, and it starts very small. It's only a matter of time before innocent little dabbling with sin or lazy pursuit of God turns to enslavement or oppression. And what happens? Well, you begin to look and feel defeated. God suddenly feels distant. His word becomes something to doubt. Life becomes pretty meaningless. And people, honestly, I don't think they they really, for the most part, we don't believe this. And what we don't believe is that uh, sin has that kind of power anymore, or it's that subtle. And we actually believe that partial obedience is some form of faithfulness. We don't need to confess partial obedience, because I did a lot of things right. And the reality is, God is not some kind of mystical, divine, cosmic killjoy trying to command things so their life is hard. His call for obedience to His ways is an invitation to life. It's an invitation to enjoy Him and to enjoy this life that we have in Him. Sin kills. Sin kills. That's what sin does. Sin leads to destruction. It leads to destruction in your own life and destruction to other relationships. Always. Always. And God said that's that won't happen. If you do this, this will happen. Did you really say that? Did you really mean that? I don't think you're really going to, like, destroy anything. In the end... God loves his people enough to confront them. And honestly, what we see is very much a picture of Romans chapter 1, where God says this is the truth, people sin, and he lets them go their own way, and they suffer the wrath because of that. And what we also see is a picture that of Jesus coming back in the end and judging everybody, including us. God shows up, and like Judah... It says he goes up to confront his own people in the first couple of verses of chapter 2. Now, going up to confront is to confront the sin in them. It says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt, and I brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of land, and you shall break down their altars. But... 
This is what I said, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say I will not drive them out before you. They shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. God had proved faithful to his promise, but Israel had not proved faithful to theirs. Even the thing they said at the end of Joshua 24 that they would do, well, we'll follow you, Lord. We know everything you've done. We will follow you faithfully. They broke their covenant. They rejected or forgotten everything that God had done for them, and they rejected or forgotten everything that God had said they were to do. They looked very much like God's people, but they didn't live like them. And the fight of faith that they were supposed to continue in the grace that they had, in the inheritance that they had, had become uncomfortable and inconvenient, so they decided to tolerate a little, to accommodate a little, until they basically were oppressed a heck of a lot. And God is patient, and he is very slow to speak, and he was slow to anger. And instead, though, of his kindness leading to repentance, it seems like Israel, because God wasn't showing up to judge anything, and things were going, you know, pretty good, we got, I'm managing it pretty well, suddenly because they're okay with their sin, they think, well, God's probably okay with it too. He's not. And he shows up to say just that. And the angel of the Lord comes and asks the same question that Adam was asked in the garden. What have you done? What have you, it's not like he doesn't know, right? What have you done? It's, it reminds me of my kids when they sin. Like, I, I say, this is, don't do this, do this. If you do this, this is what's going to happen. Don't do this. And they do it, and you go, it's more like, why did you do that? Like, what's wrong with you? I, I told you, right? It's a, how could you be so dumb kind of question. That's really what God's asking. It's not like, what have you done? I'm not really sure. He knows exactly what they've done. He's like, why would you do that? I'm God. I gave you everything. And I told you where this was going to lead. And it's led there. Why? I kept my promise, and you have broken yours. I gave you new life, and you wasted it. I told you that you must keep fighting, and you chose not to and wonder why you feel defeated now. I've told you what is right and how to have joy, and you do what you want and are miserable. The question was as rhetorical as it was for Adam, because there's only one answer. Adam only did one thing wrong, because there was only one thing to do wrong. What did he do? He rejected God's word. That's it. Why do I feel so... At some level, you've rejected God's word. You have not believed his promises. You're believing the lies of sin. You have not heeded his warnings. And because your vertical relationship with God is broken, it's inevitable that your relationship with everyone else is going to be broken. And everything else. Why? See Garden of Eden. Our relationship's broken, Adam. Now your relationship with your wife's going to be screwed up. With your future kids will be screwed up. With creation, which is your job, Everything, it's going to be difficult and hard and broken. And we read that and we we see God just judging. Well, that's it. I don't know, I read it and I go, really? Wow, that's just like, the grace, where's the grace? Come on, tell them about Jesus. And he shows up and he's like, you didn't disobey. You didn't listen to my voice. Now they're going to be snare. Now this is going to happen. I'm not going to drive them out anymore. Oh my gosh. And the moment I begin to think, and I read this in a commentary I thought was really excellent. It is total judgment, but this commentary said something awesome. He said, total judgment is what makes total grace possible. Total judgment is what makes total grace possible. And so we're face to face with a God who judges, and here's their reaction, and I think it should be similar to ours, and we'll conclude with this. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. You ever heard a a person weep? Not kind of cry, but weep? I've only heard a few times in my life, and I've done it once in my life. And if anyone was nearby, I probably would have scared them. 
because it's a deep, heartfelt weeping as you come face to face with brokenness and sin, either your own or the sin that someone else has brought into your life. And they said they called the name of that place Bochum, which means weeping. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. I think weeping is the appropriate response to God's judgment with being confronted with the fact that you and I deserve death. And that partial obedience is not enough. And for the non-believer who believes that you're going to somehow fix yourself, somehow um, manage your sin, somehow, you know, your partial obedience, you're going to get to the end of your life and go, well, my scale's worked out. All you got is weeping. That's all you got. You're going to be crying now, or you're going to be crying then. But for the believer, for those who will put their faith in Christ, for those who will put their faith in the fact that the work has been done outside of yourself, for God's people, we have much more. Because you do deserve death, and the difference between the believer and the non-believer is that you know it. You know you're partially obedient. You know that you're partially disobedient, and you know that all of that is just flat-out unfaithfulness. But we also know that no matter how much we have sinned, no matter how much we've been sinned against, there is a sacrifice for us. I love that last phrase, and they sacrifice there to the Lord. There is forgiveness in Christ. There is hope in Christ. There is love from Christ. There is grace. We broke covenant with God, but God did not break His covenant with us. That's the beautiful peace. But if you can't see your sin, if you can't see your brokenness, if you can't see the depth of your sin, you will never see the depth of the grace God has shown you. Communion is a table of weeping and worship, of tears and joy. You can't have one without the other. And when you come to the table, there should be an aspect, don't come just going through the routine, there's got to be an aspect where you come and you see that your best efforts are always falling short. And you weep at the brokenness of your sin. You have sinned this week. I have sinned this week. Go ahead and run the tally in your mind. And if it comes up blank, you're prideful. There, you just sinned. And you come to the table and it should break you in light of everything that God is and has done for you. But it's also a place of worship because you don't leave the table still weeping. You leave the table having been covered with the blood of Christ. He knows it all. It's buried and gone. And you live in the newness of life. And that's worshipful. There is joy there. We do need to see our sin but we need to see the grace of God that much more. There's a reason why I put this on here, because I am very much apt to pride. Not pride in terms of arrogance. Pride in the fact that I believe for a second that I'm not really that sinful. That my partial obedience is like, well, I'm faithful most of the time. And again, I go back to the analogy. Ask your brighter husband how that worked out. That's why I put my trust in Christ who was perfectly faithful. Every time, all the time, it continues to be, and I continue to go back to the cross constantly.